Welcome to the Liberty Exchange. I'm Jonathan Fortier, and today I'm talking with Jean Healy, who is Senior Vice President for Policy at the Cato Institute. Jean's research interests include executive power and the role of the presidency, as well as federalism and overcriminalization. Among many other publications, Jean is the author of The Cult of the Presidency, America's Dangerous Devotion to Executive Power. A link to a fuller bio is provided in the show notes. Jean, thanks for coming on the Liberty Exchange podcast. Thanks for having me. In observance of uh, President's Day on Monday, we're running a series of articles next week on the presidents and presidential power more generally. Naturally, we thought of your book, The Cult of the Presidency, which came out in 2008, and thought that a conversation with you would be a great complement to our articles. I understand you're reissuing the book this year. How do you think the political landscape has changed in the last 15 years, and how has that influenced issues related to presidential power? You know, when I first wrote the book, uh, I thought I was ripping the veil off in some sense, uh, pointing to things that were, uh, uh, you know, this quasi-mystical aura that we invest in the presidency uh, that, uh, you know, I've been going back as I prepare to write a new afterward and uh, rereading some some of it 15 years later, and I had a sentence in there, in the introduction about how the the vision of the president as this quasi mystical figure, this uh, national guardian redeemer, this vision is so ubiquitous that it goes unnoticed, and that I think is has really changed. Uh, it doesn't seem like uh, pulling the veil off anymore. Uh, in fact, you know, in recent months, uh, years, it's all getting a, a bit too on the nose. In January, uh, uh, former President Trump posted a video on Truth Social uh, entitled God Made Trump. Uh, it includes uh, lines like, uh, I, I need someone who can shape an axe and wield a sword. Who else had the courage to set foot in North Korea? God made Trump is the, the refrain. So, uh, like I say, uh, you know, if you're pointing to these weird facets of uh, investing uh, too much in what's supposed to be a limited constitutional office, uh, it seems like it's not going unnoticed. It's pretty much in your face. What else has changed in the last 15 years besides that facet of the presidency becoming more front and center? In, a, in another sense, though, the bloom is off the rose a little bit. The romance of Camelot has waned. It seems to be uh, something we really can't believe in. There's certainly a cult of personality around uh, Trump. Uh, I, I wouldn't say there's a similar cult of personality around Joe Biden. The very idea seems a little ridiculous. Um, and... You know, do we still have a cult of the presidency? Will we still invest enormous responsibilities in the office? Those responsibilities drive a dangerous concentration of power. But in one sense, you could say that uh, the, that Trump did a, like he likes to say, an amazing job uh, puncturing the romance of the presidency and uh, making it even harder to take presidents seriously as moral leaders and superior people, uh, you know, when when we fill the office, we're not sending our best. Yeah. Do you think there are other figures that come close to Trump in developing this sort of cult-like following? I'm thinking of, of figures like 
Obama, who who um, certainly generated a similar sort of enthusiasm, uh, or I shouldn't say similar, but an enthusiasm nonetheless about his election to the office. Yeah, when I wrote the book, uh, everyone in the year or so following assumed that I I had Obama in mind, even though uh, I think I I finished it around the time of the Iowa caucuses uh, in the two thousand and eight cycle, and I would have bet you know, a substantial sum of money that Hillary Clinton would be the next uh, Democratic nominee. But uh, Obama certainly was everything I was talking about in less of a over-the-top sense the, the, that uh, Trump is, uh, has achieved it. Um, but uh, yeah, the romance of Camelot, the rock star rallies, the uh, aura of hope, uh, you know, it, it was in some ways, uh, uh, you know, I, I don't want to say it was lucky, uh, but uh, uh, he really, his presidency really did frame a, a lot of what uh, I was getting at in the book. Yeah, yeah, it certainly seems so. On a related note, in your introduction, um, you refer to a 2007 interview in which presidential candidate Mike Huckabee asserted that America needs positive, optimistic leadership to kind of turn this country around, to see a revival of our national soul. And then you rightly go on to ask whether reviving the national soul is in the job description of the American president. It seems to me that to a large extent, people no longer ask this question. It's you know part and parcel of the cultish nature of the office is that it's sort of taken for granted that the president is largely about the national soul, either embodying the national soul or somehow pointing in the direction towards its revival. Do you agree that this sort of language has increasingly become a part of the discussion around the presidency? It's absolutely still present today. Uh, in fact, in the 2020 cycle, uh, both Biden and Trump had uh, rhetoric and even campaign ads related to this idea of the national soul. And, uh, you know, it still shows up in Biden's campaign rhetoric today. You wonder how pro forma it is, though. Does anyone really take it seriously? I think perhaps they, they did uh, in, under presidencies like uh, Obama and Kennedy and Reagan. Um, it's a little hard to, to swallow now. Uh, but it was never, uh, of course, supposed to be any part of the president's job. Uh, in Federalist 69, when uh, Hamilton goes through a, a long list of qualities of the British king and compares them to qualities in the proposed office of the presidency, uh, you know, saying how different the two offices are, uh, one of the one of the comparisons he makes is that the the king is head of the national church, but he says the the president that's been proposed has quote no particle of spiritual jurisdiction. We still, despite that, have presidents and political elites talking about the presidency as uh, I think this is FDR's phrase, but you hear people like. Uh, the historian John Meacham used it on MSNBC. Uh, the presidency is preeminently a place of moral leadership. Well, if that's the case, we're really in trouble. If you were going to look to a public figure for uh, moral leadership, why would you pick someone who ran the gauntlet of what it takes to uh, 
to become president. You'd be better off just picking a random uh, pop star or professional athlete. Yeah, the later chapters of your book do a good job of outlining the perverse system that puts people in, in into the race and selects um, the successful candidates is, is hardly designed to find an individual um, of outstanding virtue. Yeah, you're not going to get a self-denying Cincinnatus figure like Washington in the modern selection process for the presidency. You're going to get somebody who uh, is comfortable going years at a time, never saying what he or she really thinks if they have discernible opinions <laughs> at, at all. It's somebody who is willing to do as uh, presidential campaigns have gotten longer, more arduous, more more dominated by the primary system. You know, you're you're selecting for people who are willing to go to great lengths to wield power, and it's highly unlikely that somebody who makes it through that process is going to turn around. Uh, once they're elected and say, you know what, I'd like less power. <laughs> yeah, precisely. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you mentioned the Federalist Papers because um, the early chapters of your book provide a great overview of the historical debates around the role of the presidency and the different attempts by some like Adams to inflate the stature and prestige of the presidency, um, something that I wasn't aware of. And so, you know, we think that there was sort of this general unanimity uh, and agreement that the president should be severely constrained, but clearly there were other people seeking to elevate the role from, from the very beginning. And it seems like we sort of ended up in a place where Adams's vision of the presidency has been realized. Yeah, I'm trying to recall what the in the the early titles debate, uh, the 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 particular titles uh, that Adams proposed for the president and the vice president, uh, your highness and protector of our liberties, or some such. Right. Uh, he was pretty roundly ridiculed uh, mm -hmm. for that. Uh, there was enough small R Republican sentiment at the time uh, that it didn't really get off the ground, but it shows you that. You know, from the very start, uh, people have wanted to make more of this office than there should be. Washington, on the other hand, uh, my recollection is that the whole titles debate privately embarrassed him. And when he referred to the office, he usually used the title chief magistrate, which uh, is more workaday, functional, and doesn't imply this stewardship of the national soul and uh, direction of the country and our spiritual well-being, none of which should go with the office. Yeah, yeah. The um, date that your book came out is interesting in terms of uh, certain, I think, pretty pivotal technological developments. Uh, you were writing just when Twitter was launched, and uh, then your book came out in 2008, and then we had this whole slew of social media. The iPhone came out in 2007, and then Twitter, and then Facebook, and Instagram, and so forth. And that must have tremendous influence on the capacity of the president to further elevate the uh, nature of the office or um, to, in a sense, energize a sort of demagoguery that uh, seems to be part and parcel of the modern presidency, the ability to communicate directly with people 24 hours a day, directly to, to people's personal devices. Do you think that this is 
had particular influence in the last 20 years and the last 15 years, I guess, in terms of the, the changing relationship between the president and the electorate? Uh, perhaps not at first. Uh, uh, you know, Obama was the first Twitter president, and uh, I don't think I ever followed him on Twitter because his Twitter feed was kind of decorous and boring. Uh, certainly uh, Trump, who threw out the playbook uh, for, you know, presidential behavior uh, has, you know, put Twitter to new uses, some of which have been imitated by his successor. And But this is, it's a long story of, uh, you know, it's, it's one in a long chain of developments in communications technology that have impacted the presidency, you know, starting with uh, radio and television broadcast. And, uh, you know, the, the original the, the the norms that surrounded the presidency in the 19th century. There's a terrific book, a uh, well-known book by uh, Jeffrey Toulis called The Rhetorical Presidency that talks about the sort of common law of presidential behavior, uh, well understood that the, the president was not, uh, it sounds hard to believe, but uh, the expectation was that the president was really not supposed to make a lot of speeches. He wasn't supposed to, certainly, to go over the heads of Congress and address the the people directly. Uh, when Andrew Jackson started uh, doing that and making a claim that he had a special mandate as, uh, you know, the representative of all the American people, um, the, it was you know, considered quite shocking uh, to uh, a lot of people uh, at, at the time. Um, and uh, as, but as uh, broadcast technology has developed, it's become harder and harder to uh, uh, maintain that as the material conditions have changed. It's, you know, and the president has an electronic bully pulpit, it's there to be used. How much Twitter has changed that uh, over, say, cable television, you know, I, I'm not sure. It definitely, as you say, gives the president the ability to uh, reach people and rile them up at all hours of the day. But in another sense, it may have a role, certainly did in uh, the case of uh, Donald Trump's Twitter feed of puncturing some of the uh, romance and distance uh, of the of the presidency. Uh, you know, nobody's their best self on Twitter. And, uh, you know, when presidents uh, use it uh, and are writing their own tweets, you know, it's a little hard to to maintain this this idea that the president is a distant and regal figure. Yeah. Yeah. In your book, you do a good job of not only outlining the growth of the presidency, but you, you explore it in relation to Congress's abdication of responsibility over the last many years, do you identify particular mechanisms or incentives that um, lead Congress to step away from their proper responsibility and cede power to the president? Well, I, I think the rise of the administrative state played a, a huge role. By delegating vast swaths of power to the executive branch, Congress has uh, acquiesced in essentially turning the original constitutional scheme upside down. Because presidents control a vast federal bureaucracy and increasingly have used presidential administration to, to work their will, the president has the first mover advantage and Congress is, you know, 
certainly a lot of it is abdication. A lot of it they can be blamed for. But in effect, the president in many areas of uh, American social and economic life can make law through his agency heads. And it's what Congress faces in order to overturn that is the president's veto. So it, it turns the original scheme on its head. You know, the president acts, essentially makes law, uh, which is in Article I Congress's job. And uh, Congress has a veto, but a veto that can only be exercised uh, by, uh, you know, assembling a supermajority to, to, to overturn the president, to, to get past the president's veto. And I think one of the things that I think uh, has intensified in the last 15 years, in the 15 years since I wrote the book, is polarization. And I think that the growth of presidential power has both contributed in ways that uh, are under-recognized to rising partisan hostility and also made it more dangerous. When you, in, uh, yeah, I, 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 just finished a piece for Reason Magazine on this uh, called uh, uh, Culture Warrior in Chief. Um, if you think back to uh, you know what went under the culture war umbrella in uh, you know when we were growing up in the uh, 80s and 90s and uh, the particular suite of issues that, that were we were fighting about then, in the late 20th century, executive orders and administrative orders played a fairly minor role. Uh, you'd have debates in Congress about federal funding of transgressive art. Um, you'd have debates in state houses about uh, uh, prayer in school. Uh, you know, of course, uh, the appointment of justices and Roe v. Wade was, uh, you know, a, a focal point. But what you didn't see very often was attempts to settle hotly disputed moral issues through executive orders and administrative rules. And that has really changed. You know, the, in the, the period I'm talking about, the, the most significant executive order involving cultural war issues was something called the Mexico City policy uh, that President Reagan announced in 1984. It was about foreign aid. And, uh, you know, under Reagan's order, it required uh, recipients of uh, family planning organizations that got USAID funds to certify that they weren't going to uh, perform or promote abortion. Uh, this is a executive order that, you know, Bill Clinton flipped the switch the other way uh, within 48 hours of his inauguration. And every successive change in the president's party, you know, Republicans turned the policy back on, Democrats back off and on and on. But at the end of the day, it didn't really affect any Americans' rights in a, a fundamental way. What's happening now as presidents have used their administrative power to intervene in culture war disputes is you have much more sweeping and much more significant issues settled by the stroke of a pen. President Obama's new Title IX order, which is about to be finalized, uh, essentially makes the president the commander-in-chief of the girls' room and the girls' locker room for every K-12 uh, school and uh, most colleges and universities in America. That's a big sweeping change, whatever you think the rules should be. It, it's it's uh, you know pretty dubious that we need one rule for 
uh, you know, the, everything from the People's Republic of Berkeley to uh, Tupelo, Mississippi. This is something that should be decided on a, a local basis and, you know, in uh, accordance with uh, the values of people who, you know, close to home. You know, you, the uh, similar order uh, by the, uh, the Biden uh, Department of Health and Human Services is going – is it attempts to settle the debate over – the treatment for gender dysphoria for minor youth, uh, declaring it uh, discriminatory um, if a uh, surgeon who will perform a hysterectomy on a, a 45-year-old uh, woman won't also uh, perform it on a uh, young biological female who thinks she's been born in the wrong body. These are Issues that people really care about uh, on each side, uh, Americans are deeply divided on, and we've adopted a system where we're going to try to settle them at the furthest distance from uh, you know where people live and work. Uh, and I think that is uh, going to has led to and is going increasingly lead us lead lead people to think that. Every presidential election is the most important – is a Flight 93 election, the most important election in history uh, because uh, a lot turns on the presidency uh, because, of, because of issues like this. And uh, you know, Donald Trump is, uh, is running on a platform that will go 180 degrees in the other direction, uh, which is you – know, it's a pretty stupid way to run a country uh, to say, you know, Puberty blockers and drag queen story hour will be either mandatory or illegal depending on what color jersey the president is wearing. Um, but again, it's also – it's more than that. It's, it's quite dangerous. Uh, you know, in recent years, presidents have used administrative powers to, you know, settle the rules that govern uh, sexual harassment disputes in every college and university uh, practically in the whole country. President Biden has uh, sent the uh, Education Department's Office of Civil Rights to intervene in so-called book banning fights. If everything from uh, what bathroom your kid can use to uh, what books go on the grammar school library shelves is a matter of presidential decision, then good luck getting people not to care too much about presidential elections. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great overview. When <clears throat> the presidency becomes freighted with these highly divisive, polarizing issues. And as you say, there's option A or option B and no gray area and very little subsidiarity involved in the decision-making process, then you're bound to end up with serious problems. What are good proxies for understanding the growth of the presidency? Would executive orders be the number of executive orders issued by a president be a good proxy? Or are there other Obviously, there are other ways, uh, more nuanced ways of understanding the growth of presidential power. But for the layman who is not following these developments closely, how can they best grasp the the, the growth and the, the power of the president over the last few decades? I think executive the number of executive orders uh, is an extremely rough proxy. For instance, it may tell you something that uh, this is true, that in the first 100 days of uh, his administration, Biden issued more executive orders than 
I believe uh, Barack Obama managed in the first year. There's some there there, but the devil's in the details. What gets counted as an executive order officially, uh, you know, includes, uh, you know, Nixon implementing wage and price controls, but it also includes, uh, you know, uh, there's a, a recurrent executive order that uh, most presidents have issued, I think, giving federal workers half a day on Christmas Eve or something like that. Uh, they both count as one. So uh, the just simply counting them uh, and also you, you'll have uh, sometimes uh, increasingly presidents are issuing a lot of executive orders in the first weeks of their administration because they're doing more than just flipping that Mexico City policy that I, I talked about. The, they're reversing a lot of uh, the prior president's executive orders. Uh, so uh, some of the, the stuff that uh, Biden did in the first weeks uh, you know, revoked Trump directives about uh, uh, immigration, um, you know, and the, the dreamers. You really have to look at these and uh, examine what they're being used for and, you know, how legitimate they are. There's nothing per se pernicious about an executive order. You know, an executive order can be you get Christmas Eve off. It can be something, uh, you know, desegregate the armed forces, something that's constitutionally justified. But uh, it is probably the case that, uh, you know, it's certainly the case that uh, – more executive orders than early in the 20th century are now today used to effectively make law. But a lot of administrative regulations or even uh, in many cases edicts in the form of dear colleague letters from administrative agencies uh, have the effect of law as well. It's hard to get a simple metric uh, of that. I mean, in the war powers arena, you can look at Number of bombs dropped, number of days at war. Obama was the, uh, uh, you know, despite having run as a, a peace president, was uh, the first two-term president uh, in American history to have been at war every single day of his two terms. But, uh, yeah, I, I think it's important to look at the substance uh, of what the president is doing with unilateral powers. And I think it's it's very clear that the use of unilateral powers uh, has increased, not just in the countable metrics like uh, executive orders, but in the substance that these orders carry with them. And when you have a situation where uh, one man decides whether to, you know, whether we have a trade war with China or a shooting war with Iran, uh, who gets to come to the United States and who gets to stay, uh, even uh, as both Trump and Biden uh, at various times purported to do, decide what apps go on your phone, you know, you've got uh, something m much more like lawmaking than uh, the official who's supposed to execute the laws should be engaged in. Right. Yeah. I was thinking of, when I asked the question, thinking of figures like FDR, who I think passed thousands of executive orders in governing relative to previous presidents who passed hundreds, um, two or 300 uh, seemed to be a norm, if I remember correctly. 
And then we jumped to 3,000 executive orders with FDR, which correlates with one's general understanding of what FDR was doing. But as you say, a lot depends on the details of, of precisely what the executive order is stipulating. How do you think presidential power directly you know, has a bearing on, on our experience, day-to-day -day experience of liberty? Again, for the layman who's thinking about the growth of the office, the power of the office, clearly executive lawmaking has trickle-down effects across many different industries and for many different people in many different ways. And the power to exercise war uh, clearly has severe impacts, direct and indirect. Can you think of, of particular kinds of activities, legislation or presidential moves that have an impact on sort of our, our general day-to-day -day understanding of, of our freedom um, as citizens? <laughs> the, the first ones that came to mind were kind of a bit trivial, but uh, they, they show the extent uh, to which, you know, the president is, uh, you know, has a direct impact on your life. Trump had a certain genius, I think, in uh, seizing on the little administrative regulations uh, that are annoying uh, to, you know, uh, light bulbs, low flow toilets, water conserving shower heads, you know, the, all the stuff that a suburban guy, you know, he wants a, <laughs> he wants a strong flush and he wants the, the shower head that Kramer had in Seinfeld <laughs> and uh, He's not getting it because uh, of uh, administrative regulations uh, <laughs> issued across a series of presidencies. Um, you know, like I said, it's you know, it's in the scheme of things, it's hardly Japanese internment, uh, but uh, it does show that uh, you know, not a sparrow falls, but the president and the administrative state uh, is involved. So I, I think. In a lot of cases, uh, you know, normal Americans who have lives and day jobs and don't obsess over this stuff probably don't have a real appreciation that uh, the most of the laws in the sense of commands that carry penalties that are issued today are come from the executive branch. They're not in any real sense something that Congress deliberated and debated on. And back to one of your earlier questions uh, on congressional abdication, I think there is a mechanism here that, uh, you know, makes this more, more uh, frequent, uh, which is that uh, it's a bit of a shell game. Uh, the extent of delegation gives Congress people, uh, you know, the ability to get two bites at the apple. I think David Schoenbrod said they can pass a high-minded vaguely worded statute that delegates a great deal of power and then they can come back and uh, blast the bureaucrats when they implement the principle in a way that does harm to their constituents. And so it's a win-win in some sense from the individual congressperson's uh, perspective. And Backing out of that actually requires Congress to do a lot more work, to stand and be counted and take an actual vote on the laws that everybody else has to live under. Yeah, you outlined the difficulty in, in returning to a constrained presidency in the later chapters of your book. It sounds almost impossible given the current structure of the government, are there some easy moves or is there some low-hanging fruit that um, could be pursued to constrain the presidency 
um, in the coming years that would um, have a have a significant impact on returning power to Congress, or at least energizing con- Congress to cease abdicating power to the presidency and the executive? Uh, yeah, that's the last chapter of the book. The one where you're supposed to solve all the problems is the one everybody hates, <laughs> and I kind of don't blame them. I mean, I did admit right up front that I could give you a bullet point plan, uh, but the bullet point plan itself uh, depends on, you know, it's like uh, the old joke about economists assuming a ladder when they're in a pit. So in practical terms, I think if you're familiar with the RAINS Act, uh, regulations from the executive in need of scrutiny, which the House has passed several times, I believe just passed uh, not too long ago, uh, but never makes it across the goal line. Uh, this would start to, uh, I, I think this would be a pretty significant step in the right direction. The idea is that instead of Congress delegating uh, the power to make administrative rules to the executive branch agencies, uh, they get to issue a rule and uh, if Congress doesn't like it, they need to muster a supermajority to, to get it over overturned. Instead of that, for regulations, the new regulations that are scored as economically significant, uh, over $100 million in costs or something like that, uh, the process is that the administrative agency proposes a rule and Congress uh, takes an up or down vote on that rule. I don't think that would root out all of the delegation running riot through the system, but it would be a step in the right direction. And there have been similar uh, propose, proposals to do similar things with regard to presidential emergency powers and even with the war powers resolution, which has been basically toothless uh, and honored more in the breach uh, since its passage in 1973. There have been proposals by Senator Sanders, uh, Senator Mike Lee, and others to uh, use the power of the purse to cut off funding for wars that are not authorized by Congress. I think these are all steps in the in the right direction. And the sad thing is it looked for a hot moment in the wake of uh, the Trump presidency that there was some momentum to get this done. You know, having a president that uh, was as rhetorically unhinged uh, and authoritarian in, the, in his rhetoric, at least, tended to concentrate the mind wonderfully. And there, you know, some good bills were proposed, uh, got a fair amount of support from Democratic caucus and some cross-aisle support. But even with Donald Trump coming down the escalator again uh, and a repeat of what they tell us is uh, – a real threat to uh, the American system of government, uh, they've done practically nothing to, quote unquote, tyrant-proof the presidency. In part, I think this is because when you're in power, you like all these tools. Uh, I looked back at uh, the reporter, New York Times reporter on the executive power beat, uh, Charlie Savage, has for something like five election presidential election cycles conducted a executive power survey of candidates for presidency and Biden's done it several times now and I noticed in the last two rounds uh, even before he was elected in the 2020 cycle he uh, Savage included a question about emergency powers reform uh, you know this was after 
Donald Trump basically declared a national emergency because Congress wouldn't appropriate funds for his wall project. And uh, uh, he used presidential emergency powers to basically seize the power of the purse and get it, and get it funded. Um, in the wake of this, Biden was asked this question about emergency powers reform, and he really hedged and ducked. And uh, from the last rounds of the this survey, it seemed like uh, what he was really interested in, in terms of uh, presidential powers reform, was you know things about the president releasing his tax returns and not being able to uh, rent hotel rooms to to diplomats, so things that were not going to cramp Joe Biden's style very much. But when it came to executive powers and war powers, he was much more expansive in the extent of the president president's powers, his theories of what powers the president has, and much more resistant to getting behind real limits on some of those powers. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Gene, this has been a great conversation. Uh, we could easily run a podcast on each of the nine chapters of your book. Your book is incredibly readable. Uh, you bring a wonderful turn of phrase uh, to the uh, to the subject, and I encourage everyone to uh, to pick up a copy. When does um, the uh, the next edition come out um, this year? Well, first of all, thanks thanks for that those kind words. It will come out in the fall before uh, the the next presidential election, uh, which I know we're all looking forward to. I remember some years back uh, when it looked like it, it was shaping up as Jeb Bush versus Hillary Clinton. I said, can't we do? This is the worst, most depressing thing that could ever happen. And it just goes to show you, you never know. Right. <laughs> Fantastic. Any concluding thoughts before uh, we sign off? I would say as I've thought about what's changed in the 15 years to, uh, since I wrote the book, I think, uh, as I said, these facets of the presidency that I think went unnoticed are more widely recognized because they're so in your face with recent presidents. I also think the romance of the presidency has suffered some, and that's a good thing. What hasn't happened is any serious relimitation of presidential power. Uh, and I think that's something we're, we're going to regret. Uh, you know, it seems like we haven't hit the rock bottom that we're going to need to to hit uh, in order to get get serious about uh, about reforming our lives and our institutions. Yeah. Well, that's a uh, if uh, somewhat depressing um, note, it's also a fitting note to conclude on in um, the year of the presidential race. So thanks very much for coming on the Liberty Exchange, Gene. Thanks again for having me.